Christ died over 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. And think about that. We're sitting here with adoration in our hearts, singing praises to the Christ who laid down his life for us. It's amazing. There's a study guide that says Acts 16, verse 1 through 5 at the top. Uh, it, would, it would help you if you had one or it may possibly help you. So if you don't have one, if you could throw a hand up and if there's any extras around, you could pass them to the middle of the aisle here. Andrew, you got some right there if you don't mind passing those out, brother. Thank you. Yeah, so leave your hand up if you do not have one. We'll try to get you one. Hopefully we'll have enough. So as you know, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 16, verse 1 through 5, just in the sovereignty of God. Under His hand of providence, this is where we are today as a church in the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear God's Word. Please take heed how you listen to God's Word read and how you listen to it taught. Please take heed to how you hear. Um, there's a way you can listen uh, to, to try to come to a church meeting and listen to an eloquent speaker, and you won't have that this morning. Or there's a way you can listen to God's Word leaned in saying, God, what do you have for me to see? Holy Spirit, speak to me through your Word. God, I want to obey you. Whatever you say, I want to do. You can listen to God's Word like that, and I would encourage everybody here to lean in to the Scriptures in that way. Let's pray and ask God to help us do that. Father, thank you again for your word and for this time to sit and be still and know that you're God. To corporately, together, meditate on these scriptures, God. Thank you for this chance to do it. God, please help us. Help us to see beautiful truth from your word, God. And God, I pray that you would use... The weakness of my preaching, God, and the weakness of our minds and hearing. And you would work through all of that, God, to bring about your purposes. And Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. We want to be moved by you in our affections. We want to be moved by you in our actions. So God, please, please God, do that for us this morning. We come ready to hear and ready to submit to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 16. You can, if you're not there yet, go ahead and turn there. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. And they all knew that his father, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased 
in number daily. Let's talk for just a moment about the plain sense of this text, what's going on here in Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. So you've got Paul and Silas have been sent out on this second missionary journey. They've been sent out from the church at Antioch. They've already been on one missionary journey and preached the gospel, made disciples, planted churches. Now here's the second missionary journey. This is the very beginning of it in Acts 16. They come to a place called, these neighboring cities called Derby and Lystra. Now they had already been to those cities in the first missionary journey. They'd already preached the gospel there. They'd already made disciples there. They already uh, planted churches there. This is the place, uh, specifically Lystra, is the place where they deified Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. You remember that? And then just a little bit later, they actually stoned them, tried to kill them. This is that place where that happened. And so here they are. They're back in these two neighboring cities. And while they're there, they meet a man named Timothy. They meet a man named Timothy on this missionary journey, and he's a man that has a good reputation with the churches in his region. He has a good reputation with the brethren in the region in which he lives. Now, Paul wants to take Timothy with him on his journey. He desires to take him with him. Now, why? why? You know, he didn't want to take Mark. Why does he want to take Timothy? There's something that he saw in this man that he wanted to take with him, whether to train him or to help him. Labor alongside him, so he takes Timothy with him. So he circumcises Timothy because of the Jews that they're going to minister to, and then off they go. They go on this trip. They, Timothy heads out with Paul and Silas on this journey. Now they travel from city to city, and as they travel from city to city, they're, they're uh, concerned about the brethren, concerned about the churches. They're, they're strengthening the churches in these cities that they're going to, and they begin to deliver the decisions that were made by the Jerusalem council. You remember that in Acts 15? So in Acts 15, uh, it was sparked by some false doctrine that came into Antioch and they had this big meeting of apostles and elders in Jerusalem and they came up with these decisions and even wrote a letter and Paul and Silas and Timothy are delivering these decisions from Jerusalem in Acts 15 to these different churches. And so this section of scripture it closes in verse 5 with, a, with sort of a church summary statement. We see that. We see those scattered throughout the book of Acts. This is the state of the church right now. And we see that summary statement in verse 5. Now we're going to dig in. So that's just the plain sense of this passage. We're going to dig into this passage under four headings, which are, which are four questions that you should see there on your study guide. So the first question is going to be, who is Timothy? Who is Timothy? Second question is why did Timothy become circumcised? The third question is why do they why do they deliver these decisions from Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem Council to these churches? And the fourth question, last question is what kind of churches did these missionaries aim to leave behind? And again, we see that from a summary statement in verse five. And how can that help us as a church as we learn what kind of churches he wanted to leave behind? How can, that, how can that encourage us as a church? So let's start with that first question. Who is, who is this man, Timothy? Now, if you've got any familiarity with the New Testament, you know that Acts chapter 16 is the beginning of a beautiful relationship between Paul and Timothy. It's centered on the glory of Christ. Their relationship is centered on the advancement of the gospel to all nations. And there are some deep, loving affections. We know this from the rest of the New Testament. Some deep loving affections between these two men. 
And this is the beginning of their relationship. Now let me try to give a little, a short snapshot of this is Timothy. This is who this man is, okay? Now he was probably converted under Paul's, Paul's preaching in the first missionary journey. He was probably converted then. So we know it says here in Acts 16 that he's from Lystra and Derby. So he's from this area, Lystra and Derby, which is where Paul went on the first missionary journey. It's a couple of places that he went. We also know, know from other places like 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that Paul calls Timothy his beloved child or his beloved son in the faith. Now, why would Paul call him that? Well, we know from 1 Corinthians 4.15 that this is how Paul comes to call somebody his child in the faith. It says, I became your father in Christ through the gospel. So I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I preached the gospel to you and you were born again and I was like a father to you in the faith. So it seems it's very possible that Timothy was converted under Paul's preaching in the first missionary journey. Now, we also know this. That Paul, uh, excuse me, Timothy's heart was already being plowed with the truth long before he ever met Paul. By who? By his mama? By his grandma? We know that his heart was already being plowed. You see that in verse 1? It says that he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. She, his mama was a believer. And we know from 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says this. He, he, he says... I, I remember the sincere faith in you, Timothy, which dwelt first in your mother, your, your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois. I may have those names backwards, but in your, this faith dwelt first in your mother and your grandmother, and I'm convinced it's in you also. You go to 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, and Paul's warning him about imposters and deceivers, and he says, but you, Timothy, continue in the truth in which you learn. And remember who you learned that truth from. That from a child, you've been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures. From a child, from your mom, from your grandmother, you've been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures. Your heart was being plowed with the truth from a child. Which is able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. So we got a sweet picture here of a mom and a grandma pouring the Word of God into their son, into their grandson, in order to pass on that sincere faith to him. What else do we know about Timothy? Verse 2, chapter 16, verse 2, tells us that he was a man of good reputation among the brethren. But again, before Paul officially met him, he was a man of good reputation among the brethren. Now, this is highlighted for a reason. We see it? Let me read it to you again in verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now, this, is, this, this quality of him, being, uh, him having a good reputation, that's highlighted for a reason. This is something that Paul was looking for and, 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 and does look for in the book of Acts for men that would go with him on the, on the ministry, that would be a part of uh, being a missionary, being a pastor, uh, being a shepherd of local churches. He looked for this quality. I think that's good for us to take note of, especially in this culture, right? This kind of professionalized ministry culture where you just, you know, all you got to do is you go to school and you go to school for being a minister. You get out and look for a job for being a minister. You don't even need the affirmation of the brothers and sisters of the churches that are around you. So here we see Paul's looking and he highlights this quality that he sees in Timothy. He's well spoken of by the brethren. He takes him with him. Now, what do other scriptures tell us about Timothy? I want to see, I want you to see in Philippians chapter 2, listen to chapter, Philippians chapter 2 verse 19, I'm going to read to about 22, and I want you to listen 
So what do we know about this man, Timothy, as we just take a snapshot of his life? Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So Philippian church, I'm going to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him. Timothy was a unique man. I have no one like him who will, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. What's unique about him? Paul says, I've got nobody else that would be genuinely concerned about your welfare. And you think about what we were talking about last week. This heart to strengthen the churches. And Paul says, all the people around me, there's no one else that will be genuinely concerned for your strength, for your welfare, like Timothy is. What's everybody else's problem? Look at verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. When we seek our own interests, we are not concerned with the welfare of others. But when we seek the things of the Lord Jesus, we are concerned with strengthening and building up the church of Jesus Christ. And he says that this is what's unique about Timothy. He's genuinely concerned for you and he wants to come to help you. There's nobody else like him. Let me give you another verse. Again, who is this man? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. It says this. Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, I urge you, then be imitators of me. So Paul says to the church, imitate me. Imitate me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Timothy had become a man to Paul that he could send somewhere and know that he represents who Paul is and, and, and what Paul teaches. See, I can send Timothy and he can be a representation as one of these men that I've trained up. So this is Timothy. So I want you to think about this. All these wonderful qualities in this man, Timothy, all, all this uh, fruitful ministry, that he obviously was able to do. And yet throughout the New Testament. Here's how he, he's described. As very young. Remember he, he told uh, Timothy. Don't let him despise your youth. He's a very young man. He was also a very sickly man. We know that from 1 Timothy 5.23. When he says look. You need to drink a little wine for your frequent infirmities. Drink a little wine for your frequent infirmities. So he's, a, he's, he's a, a young man, a sickly man, and we even know that he had a tendency to be timid and fearful. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he tells him, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. So the idea is, is, here's this man who tends to be sickly and he's young and he tends to be timid and fearful, and yet God uses this man. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. I love this quote from Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. He said, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. And I believe that's the case here with Timothy. And so when Paul writes his deathbed letter in 2 Timothy, his last letter, he's, he's on his deathbed. And who's he going to write to? And he writes to this man, Timothy. And he trusted this man, Timothy will take up the torch after he is dead and gone and run with it. He says, Timothy, the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, Timothy, commit these things to faithful men who be able to teach others also. He trusted that Timothy will be a man that would carry on in the faith. And so this is the Timothy 
of Acts chapter 16. And it's the beginning of this beautiful relationship between Paul and Timothy. Let's go to that second question. Why did Timothy become circumcised? Look at verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him. Now that's an odd thing to do to your fellow missionary, right? Very odd thing. It's odd for obvious reasons. Uh, and it's also odd if you think about the context. The context here in Acts chapter 15, Paul had just stood firm. He stood his ground when people began to say, you must be circumcised to be saved. And Paul, Paul called that stuff down, that false teaching. He called it down. And so coming right off the back end of Acts 15 now, after saying you don't have to be circumcised, he said, now he, he encourages Timothy to be circumcised. They head on this journey together. You can also, you don't have to flip there now, but you can go over to Galatians chapter 2. And you got a man named Titus who's a Gentile. And Titus is being pressured by the Judaizers. He's being pressured to be circumcised. And Paul says that he did not yield submission to them for one single moment. He wouldn't do it. So why is he standing his ground in Acts 15 against circumcision? He's standing his ground in Galatians 2 against circumcision. And yet we see here that he seems to take a different approach with Timothy. And he circumcises him before he takes him on this journey. So I, I want to see if I can bring some clarity into what's going on here. Timothy, we know from Acts 16.1, we just read it, that he has a Jewish mother. He has a Jewish mother. And therefore, he is Jewish and he ought to have been circumcised according to the Old Testament. He ought to, be a, he ought to have been a circumcised man. In fact, I want to read to you Genesis chapter 17, the very beginning, where this whole, where this whole circumcision thing began and what's it all about. Let me start with Genesis chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 9. Now listen, lean in closely to understand circumcision from the first few times we see it in the Bible. Verse 9 says this. This is Genesis 17, 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring, Abraham, after you throughout their generations. Remember, the offspring of, of Abraham, uh, in this physical sense, is the people of Israel. So they're in a covenant with God. God is covenant together with these people. And, through, and, in, and part of this covenant is there's, there's coming a Messiah through you, Abraham. Through your people, Israel, the Messiah, Christ, is coming. So he speaks about this covenant. In verse 10 it says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Listen to it. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. So it circumcision is a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male, any uncircumcised male, like Timothy at this point, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, 
Here we have circumcision, a command. This is a Jewish man with a Jewish mother, Timothy, and he ought to be circumcised. Yet he has, according to verse 1 and 2, he has a Gentile daddy, an unbelieving dad, unbelieving father. And so maybe this is part of the reason that he was not circumcised. Now, what's the point of circumcision? What is the purpose behind circumcision? In Genesis 17 and other places show us that what God is doing God is setting apart a people for himself, an ethnic people group, an ethnic group of people. He's setting apart for himself with this sign of circumcision. This, they are the circumcision. They are marked off as my people ethnically. They're marked off as my people because through these people, I'm bringing about the Christ. I'm bringing about the Messiah who will be Savior of the world. Now, at this time period where Timothy's living, Paul and Timothy and Silas are traveling. At this time period, the Messiah has already come. The Christ has already come, which means the purpose of circumcision has already been fulfilled. It's now obsolete. It was meant to set apart a people through whom will come the Christ, but the Christ has already come. And so now there's no need. Now God's people are not marked off by physical circumcision, but by a spiritual circumcision of the heart. As we hear about in Colossians chapter 2, Verse 11, it says, you were circumcised. This is anybody here who's in Christ. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So here's what this means. Now circumcision is a neutral thing. It's a neutral thing. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6.15. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So listen. Circumcision doesn't count for anything, nor uncircumcision. Are you a new creation in Christ? Do you have the spiritual circumcision? That's the question. So if, that's, so if it's now a neutral thing, then why does Paul do this to Timothy? If it's a neutral thing, why does he do this to Timothy? In Acts 16.3, if you look at it in the second part, it tells us, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all know, they all knew that his father was a Greek. So why did he circumcise him? Because of the Jews who were in those places. They all knew that his father was a Gentile. So they're going to minister to lost Jews. Who would view Timothy as apostate because he's Jewish but not circumcised. But that's where they're going to minister. And you remember how much, think about how much this would affect Paul's ministry. Because every place that he went to, where did he go first? He always goes into the synagogue to the Jews first. And then to the Gentiles. He preaches the gospel to the Jews first. And then to the Gentiles. So think how much this would affect. So for the sake of the advancement of the gospel to all nations. For the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Even into the, uh, to the Jewish people scattered abroad. Timothy is circumcised for the advancement of the gospel. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of this. I want to read a verse to you. That gives you the heart behind it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to this. This will give you the heart behind why Timothy was circumcised. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. That's his heart. I want to win them to Christ. I want to see their soul saved. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but in the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things. Why did Timothy become circumcised? Listen, I have become all things to all people that I that by all means I might save some. It's for the advancement of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. So Timothy experiences circumcision for the sake of the advancement of the gospel that he might win some, that he might save some, that he might bring no offense to the gospel. And so, you know, maybe we should ask ourselves there, what sacrifices are we willing to make for the advancement of the gospel? Maybe that would be a good place to ask that question. What sacrifices are we willing to make for the advancement of the gospel? Now, but here's the problem. But again, this is, I'm saying this is the reason he was circumcised, but how does this square with Acts 15? Which I was mentioning a moment ago in the Jerusalem Council. How does this square with Galatians chapter 2 and how Paul dealt with Titus when he stood firm and would not let him be circumcised. How, how, does this, how does this go together here? And I want you to see that, this, that these things do mesh. They do go together. And I want to try to bring some clarity into how that happens, okay? So, so here's my attempt to bring some clarity into pulling these two ideas together. Circumcision is a neutral thing, as I said a moment ago. Now it is a neutral thing. It's neither here nor there. It doesn't add to your godliness. It doesn't add to your, uh, to your holiness. It doesn't gain you favor with God. Circumcision is a neutral thing. So, so think about Paul's position on circumcision. His position is this. I couldn't care less who's circumcised or who is uncircumcised. Galatians 6.15. I couldn't care less. It doesn't matter. Neither circumcision nor, nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. He's indifferent. It's an indifferent matter. That's what circumcision is. But, Paul would say, he would say this, although it's a neutral thing, if you take up this neutral thing, if you take up this neutral thing and you attack the gospel, the gospel of grace, I will fight you tooth and nail. And here's what we see. When we get to Acts chapter 15, circumcision, this neutral thing, has been taken up. Do you remember in Acts 15? It was taken up and these people were... were um, Propagating false doctrine saying they must be circumcised to be saved. So you just took up a neutral thing and you're using it to subvert the gospel of grace. And so Paul says, I will stand firm. And I'll fight you tooth and nail over that. Same thing we see in, Gal in Galatians chapter 2 with, uh, with Titus. Titus is a Gentile. He's being pressured to be circumcised that he might really be godly, really be holy, really be right with God. He must be circumcised. And, and this is the quote from Galatians chapter 2. To them, the people doing that, to them we did not yield submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We didn't yield submission even for a moment. We stood firm. That's Galatians chapter 2 verse 5. So is, this, is that what's happened in Acts 16? And I hope you see absolutely not that that was happening. Timothy is not being circumcised so that he might be saved. He's not being circumcised so that he might be more godly or more holy or gain some sort of favor with God. He was circumcised for the advancement of the gospel. He was becoming all things to all men that he might save some. That's the heart that was behind him. Now, 
How do we apply something like that today? How do we apply something like that today? Now, obviously, <clears throat> circumcision is not the controversial, neutral issue that it once was, right? We're not sitting around wondering about, uh, talk, talking about or discussing circumcision a whole lot today. So it's not the, the issue. Right? So, so what is it? What are those neutral things? And I'm not going to get into a lot of specifics, but I want to try to help us think through this. I, I, I do. I want to encourage everybody here to take time, if you're in Christ, to think through how this applies to you today. That there's these neutral things that if they're used to subvert the gospel, even subtly, you need to fight. But if this neutral thing can be taken up for the advancement of the gospel, you need to be willing to become all things to all men. So I, I want to encourage you to think about that. And let me just give you a little bit of a framework and maybe how you can think about that later on. Number one, notice that the, the focus is on the gospel. Is the gospel being subverted? Is the gospel being advanced? That's the focus here. The focus is on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should help you think through it with neutral issues, with indifferent issues like we read about in Romans 14. These indifferent issues. So the focus is on the gospel of Christ. So if it's a, so number two, if it's a, if it's a neutral thing like circumcision or, or many other neutral things that you can think about today, if it's being used to attack the gospel of grace, and listen, you need some discernment here because that happens very subtly. If it's being used to attack the gospel of grace, you need to fight. You need to stand your ground. You, do, you need to not yield submission even for a moment. There is a time for a Christian to be immovable and stubborn over the truth. And that's a moment when we need discernment to, to see where the gospel is being subtly subverted. And then the third thing I would say is if it's a neutral thing, again, like circumcision or anything you can think of, it will be a neutral thing. If it can be taken up to advance the gospel, we need to be gladly willing to sacrifice. In other words, are you like Timothy? Like Timothy, are you brothers and sisters willing to become all things to all men that you might win some? Or are there some neutral things? That you just say, look, I'm not moving. I ain't budging on this neutral thing here. Even though it might advance the gospel, I'm not budging on this thing right here. Are there things like that in your life? So I would, I would encourage you with that framework to think through how those things apply. Let's go to the third question. Why did they deliver the decisions from Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem council to these churches? So look at verse 4. Acts 16, 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So you remember that situation in Jerusalem, Acts 15. Decisions were made by apostles and elders about a false teaching that was coming in to the church at Antioch and he got driven back to the church at Jerusalem and certain decisions were made. In fact, even a letter was written to be delivered. So the question here is why were they delivering that letter or delivering those decisions to these different churches? Why were they doing that? Two main reasons I'll mention there on your study guide. One is for the protection of the churches, specifically against false teaching. So it's for the protection of the churches and secondly, for the encouragement of the churches. Let me try to explain that. So first, delivering these decisions from Jerusalem would help to protect the church, to protect those churches from false teaching, from false doctrine. Okay? 
False teaching had come into Antioch. So surely false teaching, if it, come in, if it came into Antioch and it had to be stood against there, surely it would enter into the Galatian region where he's at now, right? False teaching would enter in there. Okay? In fact, we know you can just read the epistle to the Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. Just go read that and you realize that those Galatian churches, had, they were being attacked by false teaching, by false doctrine. In fact, you can look everywhere Paul preached the gospel, made disciples, plant churches. Every single place he went doing that, that, that false doctrine was sure to follow. Every single time, false teaching followed in behind him. In fact, you can hardly find a New Testament letter that does not deal with false doctrine, false teaching, or false teachers. So it's a very, very big deal. False teaching is horribly destructive. I want us to feel the weight of that, that it is horribly destructive and it should not by anybody, no brother or sister in Christ, no member of this church, false doctrine should not be taken very lightly at all. Shouldn't be taken lightly. Now, I would say, I think sometimes we tend to act like false doctrine, false teaching is something that just the scholars deal with. It's something that seminary professors deal with. But listen to me, false teaching affects you. It's coming after you. It's coming after your church. It's coming after the people that you love. Your children in the next generation, false doctrine wants to swallow them up. Lead them to hell. So this, is a, this should be a concern, not just for professors or scholars, but for every, every single person in this church and in this room should be concerned about false doctrine. Jesus said this. He said, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect Matthew 24 24 the apostle Peter he said this in his deathbed letter he said false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in listen destructive heresies they will secretly bring in destructive. These things destroy Christians. They destroy churches. We need to feel the weight of that. Paul said this in his deathbed letter in 2 Timothy. He said, their talk, the false teachers, their talk will spread like gangrene. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul's dying, and this is his concern. And I want us to feel the same sort of concern about false teaching. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're delivering these things, which they were ignited. Remember, the Jerusalem council was ignited because false teaching came in Antioch and they want to deliver these things to these Galatian churches and other churches to protect them from false teaching. I said also for encouragement. So secondly, they're delivering these things for the encouragement of the churches. Now, how do these things, how do these uh, decrees from Jerusalem, did I go out? <clears throat> Can you hear me now? No. Dustin, can you hear me? (laughs) 
I might just need to be loud. It's okay. I'll put this up here if you get it ready. You know. If this gets turned, I'm just going to speak loud until maybe this gets turned on. Dustin, can you hear me now? All right. All right. So I've said they, they delivered these things from the Jerusalem churches, I mean, excuse me, from the Jerusalem council to the churches to protect the churches, but also to encourage the churches. So I want to talk about how these decrees from Jerusalem would work to encourage the churches. That's what I want to talk to you about, okay? If you remember, <laughs> all right, technical difficulties. No problem. Is that better? <laughs> Alright, so how would these decrees encourage the churches? If you remember Acts chapter 15, now I'm depending a lot on, on you guys uh, remembering or going back and listening to what Dustin taught in Acts chapter 15 about the council of uh, the, the Jerusalem council there. Okay? Now if you remember what the encouragement was there, it was, it was in the Jerusalem council, the encouragement was twofold. It was justification by grace alone, through faith alone, not by your works. In other words, Gentiles do not have to become Jews to be saved. But secondly, an encouragement was towards sanctification, the ongoing sanctification of the believers. They are separated out from paganism. They're separated out or, or sanctified out to Christ. So justification and sanctification were the encouragements from Acts chapter 15. Now, think about it with me. The apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, they put together a letter. They put together a letter that actually mentioned both of these things. The salvation, justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and their ongoing sanctification. In other words, you don't have to become a Jew to be saved. That's salvation by faith. But, but also, you can't remain a pagan and walk in pagan idolatry. You can't continue on in your idolatry. That's, that's, the, that's the, the encouragement coming out of Acts chapter 15. And I would refer you back to, to Dustin's teaching on that. I do want to read something from that. Acts chapter 15. You can flip back with me. Acts 15. I'm going to read verse 6 through 11. And think about how encouraging. As it relates to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, Think how encouraging these words would have been as this was passed on from the Jerusalem Council and actually things to the churches. Look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's referring to something that happened in the past. When the Gentiles heard the word of the gospel, Jesus who died for sinners, Jesus risen from the dead, the Savior who delivers and rescues, they heard that gospel and they believed. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit just like He did to us Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved. Listen to it. We will be saved. How? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The only way a person can be saved is through the grace of the Lord Jesus. God came in the flesh. Jesus Christ died for sinners, laid down his life so that we could be saved as a gift from him. We didn't earn it. No one in the room can earn your salvation. Christ paid it all. So you imagine coming, taking these sort of things about justification by grace alone through faith alone and delivering these sort of things to these different churches, how this would be encouraging for them to hear about their salvation. And then sanctification, you can, you can look down to what James said in the same Jerusalem council, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, this is James speaking, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles, those are the ones receiving the letter, who turn to God. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. This is the, the pagan idolatry. Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from what's been strangled from blood. But from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he's read every Sabbath, every Sabbath in the synagogue. So you imagine you've got the encouragement of your salvation. And in the same, in the same breath, in the same letters, the same Jerusalem council, you've got this push to come out of idolatry and be separated out to Christ. So they push a charge and encouragement towards their ongoing sanctification. So for these reasons, for the protection of the churches against false doctrine, for encouragement in their salvation, and for encouragement in their ongoing sanctification, they do, chapter 16, verse 4, delivering these decrees from Jerusalem or delivering these decisions from Jerusalem. They're doing it for these reasons. Now, I think this is a sweet example that all of us should think about seeing and imitating this sweet example. you got men here that are motivated by the love of the glory of Christ. They're motivated by love for the church and they want to go out and strengthen the churches. How are they going to do it? How are they going to strengthen the churches? We see it right here. They're going, to, they're going to help protect them against false teaching, number one. Number two, they're going to encourage them in their salvation and the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of truth. And then number three, they're going to encourage them in their ongoing, their ongoing sanctification. So this should be an encouragement for us all to imitate these men. Let's come to that last question. What kind of churches did these missionaries aim to leave behind? What kind of churches did these, you know, when they moved on to another city or when they died one day, what kind of churches did they aim to leave behind? Look at Acts 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Now notice those two things beautifully slammed together. Okay? They were, it says the churches were strengthened in the faith, strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. These two things slammed together. What kind of churches do they want to leave behind? What kind of church do we want to be? What kind of churches do we want to plant in this city and in the nations? What kind? They were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. These two things slammed together. Now, I love seeing these two descriptions side by side. This is a, an established church. They were established, and yet they were evangelistic also. 
or way, or my favorite way to say it, they had there was maturity and mission side by side. They were strengthened in the faith. That's maturity. And it says they increased in numbers daily. That's the mission of God. These people were engaged in the mission of God. Maturity and mission in this church. So they're strengthened. Okay, so they're warned about false teaching. There's protection there. They're, they're encouraged in their salvation by grace alone. They're encouraged in their ongoing sanctification. So they're a, they are a maturing church. That's what, this, that's, that's what they leave behind, maturing churches. But not churches that are just sitting there being all mature. But they're about the mission of God. They increase the numbers daily. I really want to highlight these two things slammed together. What kind of churches are they looking to leave behind? Now, this verse, Acts 16.5, serves as a summary statement. And there's summary statements that we see all throughout the book of Acts. These little summary statements that, that kind of give us uh, the state of the church. Okay, I'll just give you two examples. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we see an example. We see the maturity the mature church, as they devote themselves, it says, to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, and they're sharing all things in common. So you see a maturity there, but then you also see they increase in number daily. In verse 47, it says, in chapter 2, verse 47, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, maturity and mission slammed right in there next to each other. I'll give you another one. Acts chapter 9, another summary statement. 9 verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. They're being established. They're being matured. They're being strengthened. They're being built up, edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So you see they're being built up. And they're multiplying maturity and mission. These two things slam together as, as the kind of churches they're looking to leave behind. And here's why I keep highlighting this. Because what do we, how do we hear these two things talked about in, in the, the common uh, Christian circles? How, how do you hear these two things, maturity and mission, strengthening and increasing in numbers? How do you usually hear these two things talked about? And I would argue that they're usually ripped apart. And they're presented as something that's kind of like this tension among the churches, this tension between strengthening and increasing and maturity and mission. There's this kind of tension that's supposed to be there. I think about it like uh, the tension that people, it's a false tension, but the tension that people tend to put between the Holy Spirit and the truth. You ever heard that? Like, hey, these people over here, they got the Holy Spirit. And these people over here got the truth. And man, if they could just get together, they'd be the bomb, you know. If they could just get together, it'd be great. And I and I I take issue with that. I, I disagree with that because I'm thinking like this: if these people got the truth without the Holy Spirit, how'd they get it? Without the Holy Spirit, and if these people have the Holy Spirit without the truth, and the Spirit's called the Spirit of Truth, what spirit do they have? It might not be the Holy Spirit. So there's this this pulling apart of something that the Word of God never intended to separate, and we ought not to separate these things. And, and this is the way I think about. The, the maturity and the mission and the way it tends to be ripped apart and kind of placed as a tension. But maybe we shouldn't separate these things. Now, the way I've heard it talked about a lot is, you know, are we, we going to be, like we have to make a decision. Are we going to be inward focused or are we going to be outward focused? Is that there's this tension here. Are we going to be inward focused or 
outward focus. So the, these summary statements, Acts 9.31, Acts 16.5, and others, they show, show us that these things are slammed together. They almost seem inseparable. How can they be separated? They're inseparable. Or they ought to be inseparable in a local church. Now, I think all of us have heard uh, churches maybe described as, man, that's a, that's a deep, uh, mature, that's, that's a sound doctrine church. But you know, when it comes to the mission, they're just cold as ice. When it comes to evangelism, making disciples, the nations, you know, they're deep, they're mature, but you know, they're just, they're just cold as ice towards the mission. And my question would be, can this really be? Are we separating things that the Word of God never intended to be separated? And just being honest with you, I, I feel a little fed up of hearing that sort of description. Here's this solid church, man. They're just a solid church, but, but you know, they're cold as ice towards the mission. Really? Yeah, uh, Mark Dever has a quote. I don't know if I'm getting it exactly right, but he says something like this. If you say you're following Christ, but you're not helping other people follow Christ, I don't know what you mean by following Christ. If you say you're following Christ, but you don't help other people follow Christ, I don't know what you mean by following Christ. So can these things be separated? Can you be mature and solid, but ignore what God has said in His Word about His mission? And then the other side of that might be, you may hear about uh, somebody describes the church as extremely uh, mission-minded, just mission-minded church, evangelistic church, but, but they, uh, you know, they're very uh, immature maybe in sound doctrine or immature in godly character, something along those lines. Maybe the churches would say something like this. Yeah, we don't, you know, we don't care about all that sound doctrine, all that sound theology stuff. We just want to be about the mission. We just want to be missional. Something like that. And, and the reality is, and if they say stuff like that, they, they go, yes, they go in obedience to the Great Commission, but when they get there, they do not have a message from God. They don't, because it's not people that God needs, it's the, it's the truth that's being spread through people. And so they might go, but they go without a message from God. The way Jesus said it to one group of men as they travel land and sea to make one proselyte twice as much a son of hell as themselves. So we don't want to be like that but maturity and mission so this idea of maturity and mission so our bibles and specifically the book of acts uh more specifically acts 16 verse 5 it slams these two things together okay slams together now how how could they be separated i want you to think about that with me how could these two things maturity and mission how could they be separated how can you be deep and mature but not be deeply concerned about lost souls and the mission of God. How can these things go together? If you think about Christ's likeness, the sanctification process in a believer's life is becoming more and more and more like Jesus. But listen, all of Jesus, becoming more and more like Him in His gentleness, and more and more like Him in His mercy and His love, but also becoming more and more like Him as He is a fisher of men. Christ's likeness is becoming more like Christ, involves all of Christ. And so how can we separate these two things? Or, or how can you be mission-minded without it being undergirded by godly character or, 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 or sound theology, sound doctrine? How can these two things go together? If you think about it, the mission of God is fueled by what? The worship of God. When we see Him and who He is and we worship Him and we love Him and we adore Him, we go make Him known. The mission of God is fueled by the worship of God. What's worship of God fueled by? 
The knowledge of God. You've got to know the one that you worship. You know Him, and the more you know Him, the more you have true knowledge of this God. You worship Him, and you're fueled to move out to the mission. But, so therefore, if you are immature and weak on the knowledge of God, you say, we don't care about all that, that you know, mature, sound doctrine. I don't care about all that. If you're, if you're weak on that end, then it affects your worship, right? You can't worship Him like you are. And if your worship is affecting this weak and it's immature, then it affects your mission. Your mission will either be shallow or it will eventually be non-existent. So these things have to slam together. Now, just in closing, I want to say that I do praise God that I think, I think God has helped us in this at our church. When I think about you guys, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Grace Community Church, God has helped us to go after maturity together and be growing in it and strengthened. And also to be increasing in numbers as a fruit of going after the mission of God, helped by the Spirit of God. I think God has helped us. Now, we haven't arrived at all, and we need to continue to grow. But I do think God has helped us a lot. And so, so let me just close like this. How can we be sure that we will be a church marked by maturity and mission? Or how can we be sure that we will plant churches that are marked by maturity and mission? And I'll just give you two quick things of how we can be sure. Number one is that our eyes will be fixed on Christ. Eyes, think about that. Fixed on Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, we all, with unveiled face, and the idea there is you're looking at the Word of God and through the Word of God, we're with unveiled face looking, beholding the glory of the Lord. That's Jesus. Beholding the glory of the Lord and all that He is, all His different attributes, all that He's like, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how, so how, do, we, how do we be sure that we're a church of maturity and mission? We've got to keep coming to the Word of God, looking and seeing Christ and all that He is and all that He's like, and we're going to be transformed into His image. And then second thing I would say quickly, and don't receive it as cliche, please, but we need to pray. We need to pray that God would help us in this area. Romans 8.32 says this. And this tells me we can pray with some confidence. As we're about to pray in just a moment. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Think about that. He gave up His Son for us. Died for us. Laid down His life for us so that we could be saved. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Don't you believe when we go to God in prayer in just a moment and we say, God, help us with this. Make, make us a people that are being strengthened in the faith and increasing in numbers daily. Don't you think God will hear us? And His spare His own Son. How will He not also graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come to you right now, Lord. And I pray, I pray, God, that you would help us. Help us, God. We want to be a church of maturity, God. A growing maturity, a growing Christ-likeness, Lord. We want that. And Lord, we want to be a church obsessed with the mission that you put before us, God. This gospel preaching, disciple making mission, God, we want to be all about it. So, God, I pray that you'd help us, Lord. Help us, God. God, I pray that you would give us all across this room a love for your word, a love for the truth, 
The love for Christ is increasing day by day. And all across this room, God, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit, God, to proclaim your word. And Lord, I pray that as we proclaim your word, that you would come and do a mighty work. Lord, your word says you, you God, you added to the churches daily those who are being saved. God, would you add to us by saving lost souls? God, cause us to grow in sound doctrine. Cause us to grow in godly character, Lord. Protect us from false doctrine, Lord. And God, help us to grow in being fishers of men. You said, Lord, Lord, you said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. God, help us to do that. Help us to follow you faithfully, Lord. And be transformed into your image as a fisher of men. God, thank you so much for what you've done already in this church, Lord. And God, just pray that you would increase it more and more and more. And Lord, help us, God, to plant more churches, God, to begin more works, Lord, through souls being saved, God, and you moving in power. Help us to begin more works like this for the good of your church and for the glory of your name. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.